ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. I just to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. With this project, I've been also documenting the process of it as we've gone along. So quite a number of the people photographed have also been interviewed about their involvement in it because I got people to, when I was photographing them, to think about significant women in their lives who've had an impact on them, not just about Barangaroo, but also their mothers, their grandmothers, their aunties, their their sisters, their daughters, their nieces, and to think about what they want to see in the future. And you can see that reflected in their faces. And for me, it is an ongoing collaboration. Nabami, thou will, shall see, Barangaroo, Army of Me. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. A groundbreaking new exhibition exploring the life and legacy of prominent First Nations women is currently on display at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And it's a powerful collection of 60 large-scale photographic portraits of First Nations women and girls spanning three decades. The work honours the stories and experiences of Barangaroo, a Camaragal woman who was a prominent and powerful figure and resistor in the first years of colonisation. Later in the program, you'll hear from Arnie Alley-Golding, who is featured in the exhibition. But first, Professor Brenda Croft is the artist of this installation, and she joins me now. So, Brenda, last time we were talking, it was about your Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser Chair of Australian Studies at Harvard Fellowship. And we did speak about your role in establishing Bamali and its importance as an artist cooperative. So I'm glad a new exhibition of your work gives me a chance to bring you back and actually talk more about your work and your creative practice. So welcome back to Speaking Out. Thank you so much, Larissa. It's a pleasure being here. Now, because we're concentrating on you and your art, I thought I might ask you first, before we dive into the new exhibition, about how you first became engaged in creative practice. I always had pencils in my hand. I entered every colouring in contest that you could imagine. My mother was creative. She could make anything. Uh, She was a fantastic seamstress and milliner. And so I always had clothes that matched hers. Uh, And she just encouraged me to do things. And I, I just loved art. Art was always a part of my life at school. When I was a young child, my parents owned a news agency and my father made sure that a section of the news agency in the early 70s had an Aboriginal arts and crafts section. Which was, was very forward thinking. Yeah, which was really <laughs> unusual. And so he ordered, you know, there were small items from right around the country and they were just always there and we always had things in our house. We also had a lot of kitsch stuff as well because that was mum's way of making sure that we had... She wouldn't have called it representation. It was about seeing yourself, though. So we had the usual things that lots of homes did, the Namatjira placemats, which I was, I've still got those that we had as um, children. We and had that little carved rock, the cut rock that had the Namatjira painting oh, on it. You remember those? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we also had those weird piccaninny little... You remember the little kids? They were kind of... I can't remember what, uh, who made those, but they were in our kids' rooms because they were representations of Aboriginal kids. And so mum mum was the one who really kind of reinforced that. And often we'd be the only 
Aboriginal family because my dad was when he was before they had the news agency he worked as a surveyor on dam sites and they were quite small places and so we didn't you know being a stolen generations member he'd grown up away from community but my mother was absolutely not obsessed but she just was really proactive in that sense of we'd always have things that reflected who we were even though they kind of were some of them were kind of odd things and that just continued through my school years I always did art art was just there and you know the natural thing for me apart from a few years in the public service in Canberra straight out of school just save some money thinking about going to Sydney I went to art school so I enrolled in Sydney College of the Arts I did go to ANU for a very short period. I was talking with Marcia Langton about this a few weeks back. I would have been there at the same time she was doing anthropology, but I was so unready for university. And I was I enrolled in an anthropology course and was completely out of my depth in terms of the language being used. And I just wasn't ready. So I only lasted a term there or something. Which is ironic because that's where you are now. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's so funny. <laughs> And I did night courses at the Canberra School of Art, which wasn't back then part of the ANU, which it is now. I sort of fell into going to art school. I mean, I'd met people like Fiona Foley in our last year in high school when a whole group of us students in New South Wales and ACT who'd gone through to Year 12, we were all sponsored to come to Sydney. We met people like Linda Burney which was amazing. She was working in education. I've never forgotten hearing her speak. She was so inspirational as this young, incredibly articulate, glamorous, smart, encouraging woman. It's uh, so funny you say that. I always remember the first time I saw Linda yeah, Burney and yeah. I would have been maybe about 11, but yeah. I still remember the first time I yeah. saw her. <laughs> well, she came and spoke to us. I'm sure that was around that time. So that was about 81. And if it wasn't then, it was sometime in that period. I'm sure it was 81. And as students, there was only 45 of us out of 87 who'd gone through in the entire state and ACT. Beautiful Aaron Briscoe. I want to give a shout out to my brother Aaron, pay my respects to his incredible father who has just passed on. He was our first... First Nations PhD and also a very dear friend of my father's. I won't mention his name. And they went back to the days of the bungalow in Alice Springs and they worked together at Department of Aboriginal Affairs. But Aaron and I were part of that group, cohort, and we stayed in some little dive in Pitt Street and we went and visited all the universities and the art schools. And I had dreams of being a journalist at that time. So we went to the Sydney Morning Herald and places like that. So I met Fiona because she was living here in Sydney. We struck up a friendship. We kept in touch through letters and our letters are in my archive now at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And she was one of the really key uh, people involved in the establishment of Bomali. I always say I was number 10 out of the 10 founding members. So I was the final kind of ring in with incredible people like Michael Riley and Bronwyn Bancroft and Euphemia Bostock and Tracy Moffat and so many other incredible artists involved with that. And also supporters like John Mundine, Jackie Katona, Cheryl Rose. There was a lot of talk about, you know, what can they do to set up something? And it was Fiona who said, and Michael Riley, who said, would you like to become a member? And, you know, I'd been in Sydney for a few years at that point our paths through art school. And Fiona, when I went to Sydney College of the Arts, so I've gotten a bit ahead there, I came up in 85. 
She was in second year. I was in first year. Avril Quayle was in third year. Michael was there working as a technical assistant in photography. I think Tracy had already graduated, I think, from there. So we'd all gone through there. I think Femi had been maybe involved somehow, Femi Bostock, Aunty Femi Bostock, through textiles. She was working there as an assistant. So there was this kind of flourishing of things happening. And then Bumali was established at the end of uh, 87. And, you know, I, I didn't look back from that point. I'd been exhibiting work anyway. I was involved in a women's war and peace exhibition down at Pier 45, I think. And that was part of, I was involved in community youth services, their organisations. I did volunteer work there and a bit of paid work. And they had amazing screen printing facilities and photography facilities. So there was always the capacity to be able to do things on a very minuscule budget. And I'm forever grateful for that time because I think it's really hard for many young creatives now who don't have a lot of money to be able to find places to do that. And we were supported through the Tin Sheds photography department. Ruby Davies was an amazing person who helped make that space available, Martin Muntz. Sandy Edwards had a studio that she let Michael and I use to print up his series for Portraits by a Window. I helped do that with him in some the same way that Prue Hazelgrove, who's here with me today, has helped work as a, a young assistant with me. So you just kind of jumped in and did things. And that was the natural avenue that I wanted to, to follow, was to, to make and create. So Bermali really was a collective of artists who were doing work that was seen as peripheral at the time, South southeastern mm. political art, mm. and really hadn't had the recognition it deserved and now has more and more. Just wondering how it felt for you to have come through that pathway. And I mean, you've got, we're going to talk about the exhibition you've got now at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Yeah. But what was it like for you when the major collecting institutions in the country <laughs> that had so long had yeah. a, had, you know, had very unsophisticated views about Aboriginal art started to collect your work? Yeah. Well, I was watching what they were doing. Uh, I felt very much the baby of the group, I have to say. And Someone like Fiona, I paid absolutely due um, credit to her. I, I watched what Tracy was doing because Tracy's practice really was part of that zeitgeist. But Fiona would lead protests at the outside the Art Gallery of New South Wales when they had a Biennale or a Perspective. It might, it might have been an Australian Perspective and they didn't have any First Nations representation or certainly there was not any kind of focus on work from the southeast, and you were still dealing with, oh, it's second-rate white art and it's not traditional, and, and which was basically an extension of us as well. We didn't look and act a certain way. And so we were always provocative and we were like-minded. And this is the 80s in the lead-up to the Bicentennial, so there was all of that happening as well. It had come out of the 70s with self-determination and I, through growing up in Canberra with my dad at Department of Aboriginal Affairs, we just met the most phenomenal people, so such incredible leaders from around the country. And I just assumed everyone had that experience. So my dad was manager for Gulpalil and the Ramanginning dancers for a number of years. And so I just met people like that and just assumed this was the experience of all people. And you were expected to do things. People had fought to get places like DAA set up and I was just taken along to things by my dad. And the conversation was always enlightening. 
And coming to Sydney, it just felt this was our moment. And it was a really different kind of Sydney. You know, there were there were squats, there were great group houses. It, things were really affordable. You could, and you went and supported each other, you know, and there wasn't kind of a demarcation of this is visual arts, this is performance, this is blah, blah. You just went to everything. And people would contribute to the early AIDT gigs, which Bangara came out of that. And it, it was watching people such as uh, the Fionas and the Tracys and, and the Michaels who, well, we're not waiting, we're just going to be doing this. And, and I was very much encouraged and mentored by great people through Radio Redfern like Tiger Bales and Arnie Maureen Watson and nobody was sitting back waiting for a moment. You just jumped in and did it and it was very much DIY, 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 not do yourself in, do it yourself. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big difference. (laughs) And also when collections, the first work that I had acquired was through a show that was organised at the Tin Sheds Gallery and it was... It came out of a phrase by Marcia Langton, de facto apartheid. And I think that was the title, Bumali de facto apartheid. So we live under a a form of de facto apartheid here in Australia, which was very much the case um, back then. And I would say continues to this day. And so we were inspired by the activists and our community politicians, our people who were speaking out in terms of political protest. Gary Foley, he was the director of the Aboriginal Arts Board at the time. They gave us our first grant to set up Bumali. It was, I think, 7000 or $8,000 for the rent for the year for a space in Chippendale. And we would just go over to the Arts Board. I mean, a young Peter Yu worked over there and I work with Professor... Peter Yu now, who's vice president at the First Nations portfolio at the ANU. And we were just talking about that not so long ago. He was a young man who'd cut his teeth on politics up in the Kimberley through the Kimberley Aboriginal Law and Culture Centre and helped set up the uh, Kimberley Land Council. And we were all in it together. Uncle Chicka Dixon was a chair then. You had great non-Indigenous supporters like Chris McGuigan. I was just reading about him the other day. And we just lost recently, not so long ago, Bob Edwards, who was non-Indigenous but a really strong supporter for decades of contemporary First Nations practice. But my work was acquired by uh, a young curator in the photography department, then called the Australian National Gallery. And I still remember seeing red dots next to the photographs of mine from Black Deaths in Custody rallies in Sydney from 85... Long March of Peace, Justice and Hope, Invasion Day, 88, had been acquired by the Australian National Gallery and it was mind-blowing because I didn't make the work to do that but the fact that it was acquired for that institution was really a huge, not boost for self-esteem, but it was a kind of validation that we were being seen and that we were being supported by non-Indigenous curators in those institutions, which was absolutely essential. Well, I feel like I'm putting an ellipsis over an extraordinary career, but your latest work, Nabami, Thou Will Shall See, Barangaroo Army of Me, which is showing at the Art Gallery of New South Wales Mm -hmm. right now. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? This group of 45 works is part of the National Four, which is a biennial contemporary art exhibition showing works across the country. The series itself, Nabami, Thou Shall Will See, 
Barangaroo Army of Me is something I've been working on since 2019. And I've been working on a series of images of First Nations women and girls, many of whom I have photographed previously over decades and some this is the first time I've photographed them and the inspiration behind the series is Barangaroo, the Kamragal warrior woman, unseated sovereign warrior woman and to reclaim her name if you like or the inspiration that she provided as a staunch sovereign woman in the late 18th century. She is not simply the place name of a reclaimed area here on the harbour. She was a staunch woman who stood her ground, who refused to speak anything but her language, who refused to wear European clothes, who's just kind of been relegated as this footnote, historical footnote. And her spirit is what informs all First Nations women, I think, in much the same way as you know Albert Namajira is in the cultural DNA of every First Nations artist today, what he went through, even if we don't make work like him. So it's a series of works borrowing from the 19th century process of wet plate collodion processing, studio portraiture that we're very familiar with as First Nations people. We were photographed as ethnographic objects and eugenicist representations. We were considered as being on the lowest rung of civilization of humanity. And that was the whole thing of anthropology came out of that era as well. And our people were photographed in ways that we had no agency over as part of a dying race, a homogenous dying race. And so I've used that process working with a really wonderful young photographer, Prue Hazelgrove, to reclaim that process, but also then to scan these tin types because they're on tin, to scan them and then I can work on them at a much larger scale so that they're very much like a wall of shields, like a wall of warriors that you have to walk through to go into the Grand Court, the colonial galleries. So they're very much placed within that old space of the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And so you are confronted by these photographs of women who range from their elders. You know, we look at NAIDOC Week this year, they're our elders, Annie Matilda House, who's the National Female Elder of the Year, through to very young First Nations children. And some people, as I said, I've worked with for many years, some for the first time. There's a range of women from different cultural backgrounds, different skin tones, because that's who we are. And it's a way of saying Barangaroo is not simply that historical footnote. We are here because of her, and whoever of us falls, more will rise. And so that's that army of me, that idea of there's more of us. And it's a project that I hope to work on continuing into the future. So it started in 2019. I hope that you will be one of the people who works with me. We tried very hard. But it's, you know, it's just inspired me to photograph more of our community's women and girls as a way of saying we are here and we are not going anywhere. It's always striking to me that when we create something as a First Nations person, we have two audiences. And I wonder what your hope is for how those two different audiences, our own people, but then also the broader audience, will take away from this installation. Well, with this project, I've been also documenting the process of it as we've gone along. So quite a number of the people photographed have also been interviewed about their involvement in it because I got people too when I was photographing them to think about significant women in their lives who've had an impact on them, not just about Barangaroo, but also their mothers, their grandmothers, their aunties, their 
their sisters, their daughters, their nieces, and to think about what they want to see in the future. And you can see that reflected in their faces. And for me, it is an ongoing collaboration. And I wanted them to have their voice in this as well. So I'm working on a documentary program for it, which is also a teaching tool for non-Indigenous people to see that this is not simply about the two-dimensional here. This is also about ancestral futures. These are our futures. We need to see our people and to hear our people's voices. And some of the people I've photographed have passed away. I'm completely privileged to be able to continue to include those images with the permission of family members. And those images have also been used by families. So for me, I don't own them. They're not mine. They also belong to the people who are in them. And we constantly have this kind of open partnership where these works are as much theirs as mine. And that also goes into if works are required, I pay a percentage of what the acquisition fee is to the people I photograph because for me that's a way of paying back as well. I just can't take from my community and not continue that kind of negotiation because that's the cultural obligation that operates between us and what I expect of myself and my parents taught me that. You mentioned earlier that one of the kind of uh, inspirations or underlying philosophies of the work was this idea of taking an historical figure who had been often identified as somebody's wife Mm -hmm. and recrafting her role as a strong matriarch and warrior Mm. who does represent this Aboriginal women that you're talking about that that I can see as well in my own life, those Mm. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women who've been so staunch. What's your reflection on the role of your work and work like yours at this moment in time when we're talking about changing national conversations and a process of truth-telling? Well, with truth-telling, I mean, we don't just have the voice. We have truth-telling and we have treaty. And those three are absolutely interwoven. You can't separate them out and silo them to suit yourself, which is my concern as to what's happening right now. And that's not a a validation one way or the other. I am having a continual conversation with myself about what's coming up for us. And I think I've had amazing responses from members of the public who've written to me about coming in and seeing these images. But also, I didn't know about Barunguru. This is a non-Indigenous visitor. Why isn't there a memorial to her? I said, well, contact the Lord Mayor. We have to have action from everybody in this community. And if you've had a response to this, then follow through on it. Don't just take it home with you. Ask why. The more people who ask, we have an obligation every day to challenge. And you cannot make us invisible. You cannot erase us. You cannot continue pushing us to the margins. I'm a visitor on somebody else's sovereign country here. And I have an obligation when I'm up here and on Yambri country where I live. My country is in the Northern Territory but I'm not living up there. I'm living and working in Canberra. But I have an obligation every day to do something working with local mob down there. And I hope that I do that. And I think these representations are not simply about First Nations identity. This is about national identities. There are many different identities and nations for us is very different to the idea of Australian nationhood. We have to engage with our own communities and so there are multiple audiences in many ways and I do want work to be provocative but in a good way 
And provocation's not bad. Provocation is about challenging yourself and it's about a constant learning process. Like simply because I have professor in front of my name does not make me an expert. It makes me knowledgeable about certain things, but I have a job to continue adding to my knowledge and it's a lifelong learning journey, you know. So I always have people just behind me. I can feel them, my dad, my mum, my brother, my grandparents, black and white, Chinese is in there as well. I can feel all of those people watching what I'm doing and I want them to think well of me. So they are my guides. And, you know, I have a a young son and I watch him introduce himself to people at the local skate park as a really proud little First Nations boy, you know, he just starts a conversation up and the first thing that comes out of his mouth is, I'm Gurindji, I'm, you know, he talks about Ngunnawal country and that's just his way of having a conversation with people who, and because he's such an open kid, that's how it should be. It shouldn't be that we have to feel that we've got to have this kind of protection around us all the time, but too many of us have to feel like that. just want to pick up on one of those thematics that I think is is really powerful in this work and in your ambition for it. And and that is just the embrace of the strength of First Nations women, because I think that still feels for outside our own community, a very subversive idea mm. that we're not all victims, that actually we oh. retain a great deal of strength. And often the problem solvers, uh, the real agents of change, the tr- of transformative mm. change have often been our women, whether they're out the front or behind, uh, that's the place. And it feels like you're restoring that place, that historic place to people outside mm. of our community who haven't seen it. Mm. I love the fact that this year's theme is for our elders because too much in Western Eurocentric constructs, age is infirm. It's vulnerable. It's weak. You know, you're not as strong as you used to be. But for us, age, like I just look at the people who I was so lucky to be whacked around the ear by and mentored by. And all I wanted to do was sit with my old aunties, go out fishing with them all day. I didn't care about fishing. I just wanted to sit and listen to them telling stories because you absorb that by osmosis and you don't even realise why you're doing it at the time. And my non-Indigenous grandmother, I just, you know, I just wanted to hang out with her. And I can remember one of my first history assignments in high school was writing to my grandparents about their experience living in Sydney in the Depression years because they were completely working class. My grandmother worked as a tobacco leaf stripper at a factory down in Alexandria and she said, yeah, I was a stripper when I was (laughs) was young. (laughs) They're so cheeky, aren't they? And she worked in her older sister's shoe shop on the corner of Cleveland and Crown Street and Tilly Devine and Kate Lee had a big bust up out the front. So she had all that kind of history and I just wanted to hear that from them. So I was always nosy Parker. You know, I was always like, tell me this, tell me this, what happened? You know, what did you think? And for me, because I was the only girl in the family, and it was also that part of my dad's story, he just couldn't quite see where family was. So meeting my grandmother for the first time when I was 10, though I just drew sustenance from seeing myself in the world as well and looking to that in friends around me. And so, you know, I call on my First Nations friends and associates. They're my sisters, you know, the sisters I didn't have. And also my non-Indigenous female friends, you know, old school friends. We get together and talk about... And those are the people who inform us and, and give us sustenance. And I think we we have seen the toxic 
kind of environment around gender, misogyny, all of those, let alone racism in this country. But the idea of what strength our women bring is a massive thing that is being addressed continually worldwide. We can see what's happening in the US with the rolling back of women's rights there. Why are we so feared? Why are we so denigrated? Why are we so hated in so many sectors? And I'm certainly working on my little son, that he grows up with respect for women. And he talks about that. We talk about that all the time. You always respect women. You, you know, just because you are physically stronger doesn't make you stronger. Brenda, thank you so much for spending some time with us and talking about your art practice. I'm always struck, you know, because I've known you for so long. It's embarrassing to say how long we've known each other, but it's wonderful to have these chats and just to um, reflect on how wise you are, how staunch and how strong. So thank you so much for coming and sharing a little bit about your art practice and your new show with us. I'm very grateful for the time that you give me, Larissa. It's always a great privilege. Thank you. Thank you. That's academic artist and curator Professor Brenda Croft in her latest work, Narbami, Thou Shall Thou Thou Will Shall See, Barangaroo Army of Me is currently on show at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting the world from an indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berend and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. On Speaking Out this week, a new photographic exhibition featuring portraits of First Nations women has been unveiled at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You'll hear from one of the women featured in the work shortly, but first some music from Mitch Tambo.
As you heard earlier, Professor Brenda Croft's latest photographic exhibition has landed in the Art Gallery of New South Wales. First displayed as part of Sydney Festival, the exhibition includes portraits of women and girls who reflect the power of Camaragal woman Barangaroo, more than two centuries after she lived and died in the area now known as Sydney. As part of the opening of the exhibition, Auntie Ali Golding, whose portrait was included in the artwork, shared her story. Thank you, Larissa. I looked behind me then to see who that was you were talking about. I'm a Birapai woman from the North Coast, as Larissa said. A family of eight. There was four boys, four girls. I was a second baby. And mum and dad, my dad was a very, very, very strong man, stood six foot one. It was one of the uh, black diggers that came back from World War One, 1914-18, my daddy fought in Gallipoli. He was a proud Aboriginal man. He had fair skin, blue eyes. He was a very handsome man. And my mum was completely different, but in a beautiful way. She stood like a little Spanish girl. I look at my daughter that lives in La Perouse now. Her name is Honey. She's growing spitting image of my mama. And when I look at her, I I know my mum is there with me when I'm looking at my daughter. (laughs) But my mum never had life what my daddy had. She was an ex-Kudamundra girl. She was one of the victims of the stolen generation. Had it very hard. She was sent there when she was just going on for eight years old and didn't leave the place until she was 15 and a half years old. So when I was growing up, I used to look at my daddy and look at my mummy. And I knew which one had the strength and which one who had the power. And a girl of a young age, I really loved my mummy. But when I looked at my daddy, I thought to myself, when I grow up, I want to have my daddy's strength. And I did. I did have my daddy's strength. I proved that. Because my daddy, when he taught us about the culture, he brought all the family together. He illustrated a black box and a white box on our table, dining room table. And that's where he said, in the black box, my daughter, this is where you are. You're free. Your spirit is so free. You see so much love, caring, the sharing of the deep things of our culture, those important things in our culture. So I was taught about my Aboriginal spirituality in my black box. And he said, one day you're going to open the door, my daughter, of the black box. You're going to enter the door of the white box. In the white box, it's things are going to be so different for you. And your journey, you'll make your journey in that white box. And it did. It was different to the black box. But he said, one thing I want you to do, my daughter, when you open the door of that white box, and we have all, when you feel all the disappointments, the dis- 
all those things that will be happening to you and what will be said to you and what will be done to you. Always remember where you come from. Always remember that, who you are and your belonging. You keep that inside of you. And my father, like, he put a seed in my head which went right through my body. I did keep that seed when I'd done my journey in the white box. I come up against things, and the things I come up against was very bad and very racist, things I've went through. Always remembered my father in the back of my mind. You just hold your teaching. Be stand strong as an Aboriginal woman. Lift your chin up and have that pride and that dignity and you'll make it through that white box. And I tell you here tonight, I have come through that white box. As the age I am tonight, with that strength and those words my daddy taught me and with my culture and with my Aboriginal spirituality and it's the only way that Aboriginal people can make it more today, having that knowledge and skills of our culture and Aboriginal spirituality. When I worked in Cleveland Street High School as an assistant, teacher's assistant, there was an opening for me to have people saying, oh, Dreamtime stories, you got any Aboriginal people Dreamtime stories? That was really fell into my lap because I listened to my elders and my daddy tell me all my dream time stories and that's what I do today. I done nearly every school in Sydney. Even made it over North Shore to some schools <laughs> over there. <laughs> and you know, that was great and that was a big thing for me in North, over in North Shore, you know, but I got a lot of friends out of that. <laughs> and I was so happy because I am a down-to-earth dreamtime storyteller. And, you know, I do that. And then another thing happened when they said, anybody doing any welcome to country? Oh, well, that's easy. We can tell them how we feel, how we grew up in, in my culture. I could tell them all about the, the little bit of history that I know because the black history in this country is large. But I started off small. But as I got older, I kept telling everywhere I went, making our black history larger, larger and so important that it should be taken notice of. It should be taken in, really taken in. And so I done it. And it gave me opportunities when I started speaking. I've never ever been, people come up and ask me, non-Aboriginal people, Ali, you're not shy. I said, why do I have to be shy? Is it because of my colour that I should be shy? No way. I've never been shy in all my life. <laughs> and I'm so happy about that. And, you know, I, I had opportunities to go overseas, to speak. In New Zealand, I had opportunity to go to Canada, 
even opportunity to go to England and speak in schools over there about my culture and about my people in this country. Tell the true story, the true history. And that was my, that was my journey. I'm so, so happy with my journey of what I made. Now I'm teaching younger people to know their black history. Take it in, learn it. Know your culture, know your spirituality, because that's going to be your strength, because I've experienced it. I married an Englishman. I didn't go to school. I didn't have time to finish school. I'm self-taught, and even my sons taught me. Threw me an exercise book and a pencil. Here, your mum, just write down what the day is. It doesn't matter how you spell it, how you pronounce it, mum. Just write down and who you met, what you spoke about, what did you buy. I done all that. It was the help of my sons that helped me. A little bit of education. Darlington School is where my kids attended. I was a cleaner there. So they said, oh, Linda Burney came there one day when she was the president of the Department of Aboriginal Affairs. And she said, oh, I want somebody to um, do some reading to the kids in the classroom. And I went, ooh, the principal turned around and looked at me. How about you, Ali? Why don't you take that on? Me? I didn't have an education. I can't. How am I going to teach the kids? But I'd done it. I'd done it. And I went to the library after school and I just sat there and I learned and I learned and I read books and I got pencils and papers and I wrote and wrote. And do you know what? That helped me. Linda Burney said, we only got fundings for one year. Auntie Ellie, she said, the 12th month came up. She said, it's finished. I said, I'm glad because I, uh, I learned myself how to do a little bit of a little bit of education. Then she said, I've got another job for you. I said, what's that, Linda? She said, oh, Cleveland Street High School. <gasps> Cleveland Street? I just got through with little kindies, with little prime school, yeah, primary school kids. Oh, what am I going to do in the high school? But I made it through the high school as well because I had an opportunity to go and have this ATA course in, in the Sydney University and that helped me but I still wanted to read and write and speak you know what I felt in my heart about my culture and spirituality and I made it my husband and I were married 54 years and married to this Englishman who become thinking that he was Korean not an Englishman <laughs> Red all Blacks football club had him to do as a treasurer. They trusted him. They didn't look at his skin, they looked at his spirit, how good his spirit was. We had seven children, four boys, three girls. They loved him on the block. They called him Unc. Unc this and Unc that. They loved him and he loved that too. We had seven children, 24 grandchildren and 37 and a half. One will be, the 38 will be in October. Great-grandchildren, and I'm so proud of each and every one of them, but he never lived to see the ball. Thank you.
And that was the wonderful Auntie Ali Golding. She was speaking earlier this month at the Art Gallery of New South Wales as artist and curator Professor Brenda Croft launched her latest photographic exhibition.
That's the show for this week. Join us again next week as we feature two of my favourite First Nations writers and storytellers. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.